The following is an at-will presentation. One time I was graduating from Army basic training, and when I was in formation for the graduation, uh, actually standing in the ceremony, I pissed my pants. I'm Ben Ham. And I'm Dahlia Beta. We're your hosts as we navigate the deep waters of humanity. And listen to the stories no one ever tells. You are entering the secret room. One, two, check. Mic check. Check me out. <laughs> check me out. Okay, what's your disclaimer? I mean, there, there's no disclaimer. I, I would just like for the record to reflect that I see this as an entertainment piece. The story I'm about to tell is for entertainment value and very, very large portions of it could be completely made up. We're just trying to tell a good story here. I'm a very creative person and also a pathological liar. So (laughs) there's a good chance this is all made up. Teenagers. Teenagers. Am I right? We all either are one or have been one. Why does it seem like they're, for the most part all the same. Loud, rambunctious, impulsive, really self-absorbed. I mean, I guess it makes sense when you know that the part of their brains that makes rational decisions isn't fully developed. We all make some interesting decisions as teenagers. Hell, I got married for a year. Ben, he once drove 350 miles to sneak into a sold-out concert. And Caleb, our guest in the secret room today, he's no different. And this is his story. What were you like when this story took place? I think I was essentially a a redneck in denial, maybe. The difference was I fancied myself a punk rocker and, you know, was into being a hoodlum and my group of friends who... We're all great people. I'm not disparaging any of my, my childhood friends, but I think that all of us kind of connected over being a part of this rural community that was very small, tight-knit, boring. We were the bad kids. In a very small community, we were essentially the bad kids. The gang of misfits that banded together. It's not, not an altogether original story, you know, uh, people who feel like outsiders i guess end up banding together whether you're in small town appalachia or the the middle of los angeles and we had a particular affinity for doing bad shit that's just what we like to do caleb's secret occurs during his teenage years as you can imagine Uh, that should be the caveat for all of our, our our horrible decisions we make throughout our life right i was a teenager at the time and the story really centers around a car so, so as I said, we, you know, I had a pretty rough upbringing as, as a lot of my friends did. And because of that upbringing, I never really had any money. I was pretty dirt poor. By the time I was 16 and old enough to buy a car, I was working pretty close to full-time hours at minimum wage jobs, various you know, fast food, grocery stores, whatever. At that time, I, I was kind of living here and there um and i'd worked for a couple years by the time i was 17 i was kind of bouncing around between living at my mom's house my mom and dad were divorced sometimes living at my dad's house living at friends parents house you know couch surfing where i could um and, and attending high school i had gotten in my head that really my path to being moving up in the world having 
a better standard of living is I needed a nicer car. I needed to get something beyond the the crappy $500 jalopy that I was able to get my first year of driving. And I had it in my mind that because I was working a job and making a couple hundred bucks a week as a, you know, 17-year-old line cook at insert uh, fast food restaurant that I was ready for this kind of responsibility. I'm an adult. I'm making money. I'm paying taxes. I'm contributing to society. I deserve a new car. And this is essentially the sales pitch that I gave to my mother, my mother that I wasn't really living with very much. And I was able to convince her to help me get this new car by putting it in her name. 17 years old, it's not like you can get a loan. I said, I can pay the bills. I can pay the payment. We go out. We're able to get some low-end, brand-new car, and I'm just tickled with it. Love this car. Can you describe it? Well, I can, but I don't want to give away too many identifying characteristics of the car, (laughs) right? It was new. It was red. It's not like it was some sort of crazy luxury car. It was, a you know, one of the cheapest base model, low-end cars you could buy from whatever. But it was uh, yours. Manufactured, but it was mine. It was new. It symbolized the fact that I had worked hard and arrived as a 17-year-old. I earned this car. In your wise adult years, listeners, I'm sure you know, one does not simply buy a car. There's all kinds of extra expenses that come with a car that a 17-year-old guy may not even think about. Taxes, insurance, registration, gas. And so I loved driving it for a few months. And and thing was, is, is I was actually able to make the payments on it. I hadn't anticipated that insurance would be so high on a new car, but I was was able to make it. But it was all I was able to do. So at the ripe old age of 17, working a ton, and I was already what people would refer to as car poor. Car poor. That's when you can pay for your car, but not much else. Not so fun for a teenage guy and his band of misfit friends. And so I got pretty tired of being car poor after a few months uh, of driving this car. And I realized that it was a mistake. That on my barely above minimum wage salary, that I should have gone and got this car. But I was in a difficult situation because I had convinced my mother to get this car in her name. And I had driven this car around for a while. I had this new car. It was flashy. I'd shown it off. So I had too much pride to simply say, oh, maybe I should just let it be repossessed. Maybe I should give up the loan. And so me and my dumb shit friends, you know, came up with a scheme. At this point, Caleb reminds me we were the bad kids. So one night while hanging out with his friends and drinking, they thought rather than do the honest, logical thing of telling his mom he needed to get out from under the loan, they come up with this. One night we decided in order to avoid all of the awkwardness of well, maybe I should get rid of the car. I need to tell my mom that, okay, maybe this was the wrong idea to talk you into helping me get this car. Explain to everyone now that suddenly my new car is gone. Nah, that's too much, right? It'll be much easier if we just orchestrate a big insurance fraud scheme, right? Because this car still has to be paid for. We, in you know, teenage drunken mind state, we come up with this plan whereby we would find a way to destroy the car and have insurance the insurance company pay it off. I'm out from under the loan. 
I don't have to worry about it falling on anyone else. It's a great explanation of why I no longer have this new car. I don't have to swallow my pride and say, well, I couldn't make the payment on the car. I'm guessing at 17, sounds like it's a win-win. Win-win, right? The insurance company wins. The bank wins. I win. Now, the next step in any teenage caper is a really detailed plan. Think Ocean's Eleven or The Italian Job. Right? Yeah. So we go to crafting a plan. Let me just say that the, the nexus of the plan was us having a really a good relationship with Crackhead Johnny. We're calling him Crackhead Johnny because Johnny's a generic name and he was in fact a crackhead. And the plan was we would find a way for Crackhead Johnny to steal the car, take it into some back roads up in the mountains of Appalachia, not very well traveled road that he knew about and essentially push it off the side of a mountain. Here's the thing about having a connection to someone, you know, a, a crackhead, a capable crackhead, but nonetheless, they need to be a crackhead, right? Because we're on a budget. We're trying to commit a conspiracy on a budget here. We had about 75 bucks to make this happen. There are not many people who are going to push a car off a cliff and commit insurance fraud for 75 bucks, unless they have a pretty bad drug habit. That's why Crackhead Johnny is such an important part of the story. We had just the guy for this circumstance. You needed Crackhead Johnny. We needed Crackhead Johnny. It's not a real adventure without a crackhead. Okay, this is the part in the movie where the ringleader explains his intricate plan, usually involving blueprints and time logs and door codes and whatnot. This time, it just involved crackheads, teenagers in Jinko jeans, a red car, and a strip mall. We went to, you know, one of the, the outlying towns around our area. Me and another friend went, parked, went into the little strip mall, did our normal what teenagers do on a Saturday. The car in question is in the parking lot at this point. You're shopping right. around. It's in the parking lot and me and not Crackhead Johnny, let's call this other friend that's with me, let's call him... Uh, Ryan. We park the car, we go into the mall, and we just, we start shopping. We start doing our, our normal thing that we would do any other Saturday as 17-year-olds wandering around. Funny thing happens during our time in the mall, and I've, I've, I've prefaced this a few times. We were, we were bad kids. We did bad things. We used to love to shoplift. And so, while the car's sitting out there in the parking lot, while we're in the middle of this insurance fraud thing that's about to happen. Can we call it a caper? A caper, let's call it. While we're in the middle of this caper, one of the biggest capers we've ever pulled off. We're just walking to all the normal stores that we go to, wearing our normal baggy jeans and baggy shirts that were all the rage at that time. We come out of a store and the security guards grab us and we're thinking, holy crap, the jig is up. What's going on here? As it turns out, we had been profiled because the security guards were completely right. If it was any other Saturday, they probably would have caught us with pockets full of shoplifted merchandise because that's what we did. We were, we were profiled, but we were accurately profiled, you know, as shoplifting punks. It just so happened that on this day, 
we had not shoplifted anything because we had much bigger crimes to commit. So searches us, looks through all of our pockets, nothing there. Sorry guys. They called us from the store. They thought you were shoplifting. Yeah, that's right, pigs. Get off of us. No, we didn't say any of that. We were, you know, scared to death. We're like, oh, that's okay, sir. Thank you. Thank you, officer. So this is all going on. We're already scared. We're already nervous. We're walking around like, all right, we go back out to the parking lot. Lo and behold, the car is not there. So we go back into the mall. You know, we ask to use the phone. We call another friend's mom to say, hey, my car got stolen. Can you come pick us up? That's all fine and dandy. Meanwhile, Crackhead Johnny and another friend of mine, let's call him Matt. Crackhead Johnny and Matt had come to my car in the parking lot, gotten in it, driven it away. When you were in the store, before you got even caught for shoplifting, Mm -hmm. How did you feel, like, knowing that this was going on in the parking lot? What was, like, going through your mind? How were you feeling? Were you jittery? Were you, like, just calm and cool with it or what? So we were pretty jittery, and I think I think in general, I don't think any of us really thought it was going to happen because the, the whole scheme was a bit outlandish. And I think that we were walking around still in that kind of fugue state of, oh, well, yeah, oh, this is crazy, this might happen, but still kind of thinking, come on, this isn't really going to happen. Is it? Right? Honestly, I, I fully expected to walk back out into that parking lot and see the car sitting there and say, ah, you know what, it, it didn't work. You know, it, it was a fun scheme that we dreamed up, whatever. but we didn't count on the fact that, you know, when you shake $75 in front of a crackhead, they're going to get some things done for you, Right? There's nothing more dependable than a man in the throes of crack addiction who who you have offered money to accomplish a task for you. I can see. I can see that. I mean, if you if you really ever need something done, trust a crackhead telling you (laughs) throw some money in front of him and and the prospect of of getting high for hours. They'll do anything. Okay, so car is gone. Car is gone. Buddy's mom comes, picks us up, takes us back. You know, we we stay there the night. Meanwhile, Crackhead Johnny and Matt were driving my car off into Nowheresville, Appalachia, up a mountain. There was a pre-designated area in Crackhead Johnny's head that he was taking it. They found that area, pushes the car off a cliff. Car's gone. Right, Crackhead Johnny and Matt come on back down the mountain go wherever they were going and uh, the night's over it worked it actually worked crackhead johnny came through or so they thought so everything was great car's gone somebody stole it i don't know who for about three weeks we felt like al capone just criminal masterminds and then We get the call. Small town police department wanting to speak to me about my stolen car. They call both me and my mother in. Here's the the weird thing. My mom knew what was going on. And we talked about it on the way in. And basically the, you know, honor among thieves. You don't ever say anything to the cops. Don't go snitching. All right. Number one rule. So everybody was in on it. Nobody's going to say a word. Yeah, that, that's that's what we all agreed to. Nobody says anything. 
Because that's how things start falling apart. Somebody starts talking, like, on a microphone, on a <laughs> podcast, you know, many years later. Uh, yeah, so we get called into the police department. We're questioned, and just by the nature of the cops' questions, I, I can tell they have an idea of what's going on. As it turns out, out there in the middle of the woods, nowheresville, the, the car was fine for three weeks. No one saw it. Nothing was going on. But some hunter out in the woods stumbled upon a wrecked newish car uh, on the side of the mountain and uh, decides to call the police. They come in. They're able to drag it up, take it to the impound yard. And now I'm being questioned by the police about the report. And just by the nature of their questions, I can tell they know it's me. They know I had something to do with it. They know there's something behind it. And they bring me in. They question me. They grill me pretty hard. They do a little good cop, bad cop. No, didn't do a very good job of it. But they did do some good cop, bad cop. You know, I didn't say anything. Uh, Kept my mouth shut. Luckily, my mom did the same thing. And uh, we waited and waited. And as it turns out, nothing happened. So we got away with it. Despite a little bit of uh, stress on our end, everything actually worked out pretty well. And I don't mean for this to be some sort of endorsement for uh, teenage insurance fraud as a something to do. Kids don't don't commit insurance fraud. Don't try this at home. The secret room and Dahlia are not encouraging you to, to go commit any sort of crime at all. Hear that, people? This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Don't get any ideas. How do you feel now that it's done? It almost seems like it's someone else's story. It was so long ago and it was so ridiculous. And I'm I'm such a different person now. If, if you know the details of who I actually am right now... <laughs> The, the fact of that this story exists somewhere in my history makes it all the more uh, funny in a certain sense. It, it just doesn't seem real. I mean, I really was a kid. I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I was smart. I thought, well, as it turns out, I was correct. I was able to outsmart the police. Yeah, as I, I look back on it now, it doesn't even seem like it really happened, but I know it did. All right. So in a way, it was successful, but if you were to go back in time, back to that time, okay. would you, what would you do differently <laughs> in the caper? So, so, so your question is, is not like, what do you wish you hadn't done it? It's like, how, how would you better accomplish this crime? Exactly. That's your question, Dahlia? <laughs> yes. I, you know, I've been trying to, to build you up as, as not <laughs> giving the kids a bad message, but you're not helping me out very much here. How would I commit a better crime? You know, when you're a kid, you're, you're, you're in a group of friends, you, you think that they're, it's impenetrable, you think that there's nobody like the people you hang out with, and, and to a large extent, I feel like that's, that's pretty true. For, for me, it's been true, but man, a lot of people knew about this scheme, and that was probably, somehow, it all held up, right? But I feel like if the police had been able to connect a couple more people to the scheme, I knew about it because way too many of my friends knew that this was about to go down and knew when it went down, somebody would have probably cracked. So, uh, yeah, I guess if you want to commit a better crime, involve as few people as possible. Okay. <laughs> Don't commit crimes, but if you do, 
do it with less people. Exactly, exactly. And even now, you keep the story pretty under wraps. You don't want it to get out. Yeah, you know, I mean, except for putting it on the occasional podcast that goes out to, you know, thousands of rabid listeners. (laughs) So sometimes teenagers, they get away with stuff. I don't know if it requires a crackhead to pull off a caper, but this time, somehow, it worked. The things we do as teenagers, however exciting or scary they seemed then, they become more cringeworthy over time. The phrase, what was I thinking, repeats in our minds throughout our adult years. And I guess that's what I'm getting at. As teenagers, were we thinking? Or were we just hooked on the thrill? Wow, Dahlia. Caleb's friends might have been a bunch of misfits, but they were good friends. I don't think anyone I know would help me with a scam like that one. Oh, Ben, do you have friends? <laughs> Hold on. That's not very nice. Well, I'm glad you're <laughs> glad you're feeling a little better. We missed you last week. Thanks. It was a rough few days. Well, you got any big plans for the holidays? Yes, as a matter of fact, I do. Okay. Uh, sounds a little mysterious. You gonna spill? Nope. It's a secret. But I may be having to take a break for a little while. Such a tease, Dahlia. It better be a good one. You have no idea. (laughs) Okay. It is. Trust me. (laughs) Okay, we're going to hold you to it, though. Give us a preview of our next show, Ben. Who's going to be in the secret room? Next time a woman shares a secret that's so personal, she's only ever shared it with her fiancé. But now she is going to tell the world right here in the secret room. My secret is that I think every single day about the last words that I said to my dad before he died. All right, so everybody check out the next episode. Now we close the secret room door for the 25th time. That's silver, right? Yep, it's a secret room silver anniversary. This is the traditional moment in the show that we send a shout out to our theme and music composer, Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you ever want to share your ever so cool story right here in the secret room, just give the secret line a call, 929-265-TSRP. And if you want to support the show and keep us in the charts, leave us a nice review on iTunes. It helps get the show in front of more people. And if you like Twitter, follow the show at Secret Room Pod. I'm Ben Ham. And I'm Dahlia Beta. And this is The Secret Room. Pod on. Pod on.